days. If you have a Bible, let me encourage you to grab it and make your way to the book of Ephesians, chapter 3, where Jeff just read from. Uh, We're going to be continuing our study through the book of Ephesians. And one of the things that I think would be really helpful to all of us during, particularly these days, I think all, all the time, but particularly these days of a pandemic, is to, if you don't already, begin to read Christian biographies. Because in biographies, you get a chance to just get a different perspective than our cultural moment that we live in. As you read through biographies, you get to see that the people that so often we think of as as heroes in the faith, we we picture them so often as just that, as as heroes with cape flapping in the wind. But when you read a biography and you get to see what their lives were like and the particularities of their day that they faced, the difficulties, the trials, you begin to see that they were just men as well or women as well. That the best of men and women are still men and women at best. And in that, there is hope that floods into our lives. Because we see that it's not, you know, the size of this person's faith, but it's the who the person, their, their faith, who is their faith in that makes a difference. And it gives us hope that the same God that they trusted is the same God that we trusted. And that he is the same yesterday, today and forever. And so as you begin to read these biographies, you begin to get a sense of what God has been doing all along and continues to do in this day. You get to see the chaos of the lives that they lived in, the the craziness of the times that they lived in and what they went through. And so as you read through Augustine and Calvin and Luther and Susanna Wesley, Jonathan Edwards, Frederick Douglass, on down to Lottie Moon, Charles Spurgeon, The stories of their lives fill us with hope because they remind us that God doesn't take days off. He never calls in sick and he bends all difficulty and suffering to his sovereign will for his purpose. Biographies give us a snapshot of the manifold wisdom of God in accomplishing his eternal purpose. And they give us hope. And in a lot of ways, that is what Ephesians chapter 3, 1 through 13 is. It's a little snapshot almost of of Paul's autobiography of his testimony. He gives us a kind of a summary of, of a couple of aspects of it that point us to hope. And and I, I I think there's something really sweet here just in the Lord's providence that's happening. Like he had Paul write these words so that his readers, when they read it, would see hope through his testimony and how God works. And then just in a little hug to those of us in this little slice of his global church called Providence Baptist Church, he has us in these verses on this day in this time to fill us with hope. And so this morning, I pray that definitely we would be challenged by a couple of aspects, uh, kind of summary statements of of Paul's testimony. But I pray by the time that we come to the end, we would also be filled with great hope and resolve, even in the midst of suffering that we may face today and in the days to come. 
And so we're going to begin just by looking at these two kind of major markers of Paul's autobiography, his testimony. And then again, we will transition into kind of a summary statement at the end. But let's uh, get into these two major markers. And the first one is this. Number one in your notes, if you've got the sermon guide in front of you, Paul has been captured by the mystery of Christ. Okay, Paul has been captured by the mystery of Christ. And so look at verse one with me. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ. And so again, he's kind of given us a little autobiography, a testimony of his life. And he's saying like, this is who I am. I am a prisoner of Christ. And this is the theme of his life. Now, there's a literal thing going on here in the sense that Paul absolutely is in prison in Rome. He's under house arrest. He's chained to a Roman soldier on behalf of his ministry to the Gentiles. There's a literal thing happening here. But largely, he's using this metaphorically as he does through most of all of his epistles. We repeatedly calls himself a bondservant in Greek, a doulos, a slave to Christ, a prisoner of Christ. And so he's using this primarily metaphorically. This is the theme of his life. He has been captured by the mystery of Christ. Have you ever been captured by something? Have you ever been captured and and, and just completely overwhelmed with something, just completely enveloped in something and it consumes you? It becomes your overriding ambition. To the point that things that you otherwise would absolutely love to do. I mean, really, 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 really want to do these things. Want to pursue these things. You choose not to pursue them, even though you really want to. Because you want this other thing so much more. That's the idea here Paul has of being captured by Christ. It overrides everything. And so in a way, with these ambitions, I mean, like for me, with running back in the day, like I was a prisoner to it. Now, a willing prisoner, a glad prisoner, very much so. But there were things I would not do or pursue because I wanted to pursue or do these other things even more. And so I was a willing prisoner, but I was a prisoner to it, no less. That's kind of the idea that Paul is getting at here, but he's not with trifle. It's not with a trifling thing like some hobby or some sport. This is the idea of a prisoner to the nth degree, to the maximum degree, to the greatest thing you could ever be captured by, the thing that we were created to be captured by. Christ. And his love and his mercy and his kindness and his glory, his grace. That's what Paul means here. He's been captured by Christ. He's become a prisoner of Christ. I mean, think about it. Think about who Paul used to be. He used to be a prisoner of sin, right? He used to be Saul of Tarsus. That's who he used to be. And so if you're into Marvel movies, you can think of Saul almost as like the winter soldier serving Hydra. But now, because of Christ, he's become basically the like, Captain America of the gospel. Willing to do whatever it takes to see the glory of Christ spread. This is Paul. 
And it was the grace of God that did this in his life, not his self, not his self-will. He was on his way to Damascus to go kill more Christians. And Jesus showed up to him and said, Paul, you're going to be Saul, you're going to be mine now. Your name's going to be Paul and you are going to take the message to the Gentiles. And I'll show you how much you'll have to suffer for it. And suffering's not a stranger to Christianity. It's part and parcel of it. And so Paul was captured by Christ. He was captured by his glory and by his goodness and by his grace and by his forgiveness of sin. What about you? What has captured your heart? Everybody is captured by something. Everybody is a prisoner of something or someone. It's not a question of if, it's just what is it? And so what is it in your life? What has captured your heart? What, what rules your heart? What, are you, what have you been mastered by? Is it stuff? Is it money? Is it what people think about you? Is it yourself? Or is it a benevolent, eternal, omniscient, omnipotent, that's all-knowing, all-powerful, good and gracious God who so loved you that He gave His only Son so that you do not have to perish but could have eternal life? Who are you ruled by? Who is your master? Everybody's ruled by something. Choose wisely. And so Paul, in his testimony, says, listen, I've been captured by Christ. Gladly, I am a glad prisoner of Christ. But in particular in this testimony, he says he's been captured by the mystery of Christ. We see that word over and over and over. Look look at the text with me again. Chapter 3, verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ... On behalf of you Gentiles, assuming, this is kind of like a rabbit trail he goes on and he gets back to his main point in verse 14. Assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. How the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I've written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive insight into, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And so, repeatedly, we have this word mystery. We've already seen it once in chapter 1, verse 9. But clearly, there is some mystery that wasn't as well understood and now is more understood. And what this mystery is, is really twofold. First, the mystery is that it is God's intention that His people be from every tribe and tongue and nation. Not just from one. That's part of the mystery. And then secondly, the mystery is also the nature of how that would be done. How that would be accomplished, which is in Christ through 
the church. Now, I want you to pay close attention here. We're going to mine a little bit for a minute. And I want to make sure you understand from the get-go that just because the mystery has now been fully revealed does not mean that it wasn't spoken of in earlier times. Matter of fact, it was actually spoken of all over the Old Testament. That God's people would actually be from all people groups. This is all over the Old Testament, if you look for it. But now it's become very visible in the New Testament. But it was already there. And so, for example, uh, kids, I need your help in explaining this for a second. All right, Particularly, maybe helping explain this to your parents. Because there is a uh, cartoon on PBS now that's called Daniel Tiger. All right? Adults, this is Daniel Tiger was a character in Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood back in the day in the land of make-believe. And so now they've made a, a cartoon built around his, his life. Right? It's got the trolley and everything that you remember. And there's one episode where Daniel Tiger goes and uh, he's spending the night with his best friend, Prince Wednesday. And so he's spending the night, they turn the lights off and turn on the light light, and there's this shadow on the wall. And Daniel is really, really scared of this shadow. He doesn't know what it is. It's a mystery. But then when they flip the lights on, it becomes clear what it is. The mystery is gone. It was just a stuffed animal casting a shadow. In a lot of ways, this is, what the old, like, this is how the Old Testament and the New Testament work. There's a little bit of a mystery, and then the lights come on, and it's a little more clear. And so for those of you who are, who are hunters, or those of you who are bird watchers, you know, when you look through the scope of your rifle, or you look through the binoculars, like if you're hunting, and you, you can kind of make out, okay, that looks like it's a deer, but before I pull the trigger, I want to make sure it's not a person, you know, not wearing orange, so I'm going to dial in, I'm going to make sure, you know, this thing becomes very apparent and very clear. And so you, you adjust the scope, you get it perfect, and then boom, all of a sudden, crystal clear. That's kind of how the Old Testament and the New Testament work. And so, for example, specifically, in the Old Testament, God promised universal blessing through Abraham. Okay? Genesis 12, verse 3. But the full meaning of that promise became clear when Paul wrote in Galatians 3, verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, that's possessive, if you belong to him, listen to this, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Or as he wrote earlier in chapter 3, verse 7, still in Galatians here, know then that it is those of faith. Not ethnicity. It is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And so while this was spoken of all throughout the Old Testament, it became clear in the New Testament. It became clear that the covenant that God had with Israel, okay, the promise of verse 6 here, now extends to all who are in Christ Jesus. I mean, verse 6, again, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow 
heirs, not lesser, fellow members of the same body and partakers of the promise, covenant, in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And so listen to me, what this means is that there are not two peoples of God. Not that God worked through the Jews, and then he worked through the church, and then someday he's going to work through the Jews again. The church is some parenthesis in God's plan. No, the church is God's plan. Always has been. Always will be. Mysterious, now fully revealed and seen clearly. That the true Israel is not about ethnicity. It's about faith. Galatians 3, 7, again, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. This had been a mystery, and now it's been fully revealed. Skipping ahead to verse 11, this was according to the eternal purpose that he is realizing Christ Jesus, our Lord. And so in a lot of ways, it's kind of like Palm Sunday. On Palm Sunday, like when Jesus came riding into town on a donkey, the one time he absolutely accepted people calling him the king. He didn't say, hey, don't call me that. He was like, yeah, bring it. You can call me the king. The one time, his disciples did not understand what was going on in the midst of all that. When they're yelling out hosannas, they're laying the palm branches down. They didn't get it at first. In fact, in in, in John chapter 12, verse 16, it says this. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. So it is with this mystery here. It was there all along. But only later did the lights come on and you could see what this mystery actually was. All right, and so it's this mystery of Christ, this twofold mystery of Christ, what it is and the nature of how it would be accomplished. It's this mystery of the gospel, the vertical reconciliation and the horizontal reconciliation that has captured Paul. He's been captured by the mystery of Christ. That's one way he would summarize his life. The second way he would summarize his life, number two in your notes, is this. Paul not only has been captured by the mystery of Christ, number two, he's been made a minister of the mystery of Christ. Paul has been made a minister of the mystery of Christ. Again, another summary statement. So look at verse 7 with me. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of His power. To me... Though I'm the very least of all the saints, this isn't false humility. This is like he knows he was a persecutor. He knows he was Saul of Tarsus. He knows he was the winter soldier working for Hydra. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone... What is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known 
to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. And so Paul is saying that just as he was made a prisoner by grace through faith of Christ, so God now has made him a minister by grace through faith. A minister of this mystery to the Gentiles. And that verse 9 is not only to make the mystery known to people, but that the church, which is the manifold wisdom of God, might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. What does that mean? What is the manifold wisdom of God? I mean, I grew up, my dad's like a, a, a gearhead, manifold. I start thinking about something in a car. I start thinking about exhaust and stuff. What Manifold wisdom of God, what is this about? When in a nutshell, it's getting back to the mystery of the Jew and, Jew and Gentile dilemma here. It's getting back at that mystery that the church is made up of Jews and Gentiles. And not that they are just both part of the same church, but that they are on equal footing, that there is equality there. And Paul is saying this, that thing, is the manifold wisdom of God. And he chooses those words very, very carefully. The idea of manifold has a specific meaning. In fact, the word manifold literally means many-colored wisdom. It's what it means. It's the same word that's used to describe Joseph's coat of many colors in the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament that Paul used during this time called the Septuagint. If, and when he wanted to look at the Greek, and he normally probably just read the Hebrew scrolls. But that word in Greek, it's the same word that Paul uses here in Greek. Manifold, it literally means many colored. It's the many-colored wisdom that God has. And so basically, the manifold wisdom of God is that the gospel is for all people. And that the church will be many-colored like Joseph's coat was. And folks, God is working actively to achieve this. To bring His creation, like working in His creation to bring this to pass. And as he does, he not only preaches a sermon to the watching world of the power of the gospel to reconcile vertically the division that existed between us and God, but also horizontally the divisions that we set up in this world. It preaches that gospel to the world, preaches that to the watching world, but it also preaches that sermon to spiritual rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Preaching to them that their power has been decisively broken. And their final defeat is imminent. That the church, the multicolored wisdom of God, by its mere existence, reminds them of this. And so this is like the 10,000th reason why racial reconciliation in the church is a huge deal. It's not a PC thing. It is God's idea. It is literally the manifold wisdom of God. To think it's not is to say God's not wise. And I don't think any of us wants to say that. And so Paul's saying he's been a minister. He's been made a minister of this mystery. 
of the gospel that reconciles vertically and horizontally. And here's the deal. So have we. We too have been made a minister of this gospel. Now certainly Paul is a little different. He's a unique individual in redemption history. He was an apostle. He wrote a lot of the New Testament. None of us have done that. Apostles don't exist anymore in in that sense. Capital A apostle. But the ministry of proclaiming in word and deed with our lips and with our life, the truth of the gospel is very much our job. See, the, God, the brass tacks is this. The gospel is for everyone, right? No mystery about that. There's no debate about that. No wondering about that. That's been revealed. It's been made known. It, the gospel is for everyone. If you have any background in the church, you would say, yep, mm-hmm, amen, got that. The question is, do you really live like that? Do you really believe that the gospel is for everyone? Or do you think there are prerequisites to the gospel? Prerequisites of culture, prerequisites of morality, prerequisites of dress, prerequisites of language, prerequisites of nationality, on and on, prerequisites of sexuality. Do we think there are prerequisites to the gospel? Or do we believe that the gospel is for everyone and changes you? Not necessarily culture, but does change how you live your life, does change uh, your sexuality, does change like things that are not of Christ. You become a Christian, you trust Christ, he goes to work changing you, and he brings you into conformity with what he has called you to do because he is wise and he knows best. This gospel is totally inclusive of all people who will simply repent and believe and trust in Christ that he lived the life that they didn't, that I did not, you did not live, a life of sinlessness. And that he died the death that we have been condemned to die for our sin. He died in our place as our substitute on the cross to pay for our sin. What we owed, Jesus paid. And then three days later, what we will celebrate next Sunday, he rose again in victory over Satan, sin, death, hell, and the grave to give us a gift we could never earn. Forgiveness of our sins. Justification. And so the dividing line is not some ethnicity thing, Jew, Gentile. It's not, it's not, the divine line is belief and lack of belief. And there's no prerequisite to belief. It's just belief. And then God will go about changing aspects of you and bring them into conformity with what he has called, the, called you to be. All right, Those things flow out of the gospel. They're not prerequisites to it. And so you and I have been saved from sin and we've been saved to this mission to proclaim this message for the glory of God and the good of those around us. That they too might know Christ and be forgiven of sin and have eternal life. And so are you proclaiming it? Are you? And in these days, one simple way is invite someone to watch a live stream. Not hard at all. One simple way. Proclaim it. However, the, proclaim it. We are called to do this.
the gospel is for everyone. And when, we're, when we find ever-increasing unity in diversity, we proclaim the greatness of God's vertical and horizontal reconciling work to the world and also, again, even to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. And now watch this, verse 11. This was according, all, right, all this stuff, that this was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. All of this, it's, it, it's happening. In whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. Now, go back to verse 11 again. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus. Like, he's accomplished it. And now we're just watching it be carried out. His eternal purpose has been accomplished. Jesus rose again. It's been accomplished. Now we're watching it roll out in whom we have boldness. We have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. And so while unique in redemptive history, absolutely. This testimony, this biography, autobiography of Paul still screams to us of the fact that God carries out, verse 11, his eternal purposes always. Like in the face of prison. It's not a good day for Paul. He's in prison, right? Later, he'll get out, and then he'll get rearrested and be thrown in a dungeon, and ultimately martyred, still in prison or martyred. God is accomplishing his eternal purposes to live as Christ, to die as gain. He's accomplishing his eternal purposes in the face of, of kidnapping, death threats, and then later living through the plague and watching his own daughter die because of the plague. Martin Luther. That was him. And God was accomplishing his eternal purpose through that. In the face of chaos. In the face of mounting death numbers in our days. In the face of job loss. In the face of unemployment. Not able to pay my bills right now. How am I going to make it through? How is the Lord going to work in this? I do not understand. The economy is collapsing. Listen. God's eternal purpose will be accomplished. And it's for our ultimate, ultimate, maybe not momentary, ultimate good. And so verse 13, don't lose heart in your suffering. Don't lose heart. Friends, this is what Paul's testimony ultimately cries out to us. Write this down, number three in your notes. Paul's testimony gives us hope of God's eternal purpose even in our suffering. Paul's testimony gives us hope of God's eternal purpose even in our suffering. And so here's what you need to hear. Your suffering in this moment isn't purposeless. It's not. This is why Paul and we can actually rejoice, as he says elsewhere, in our sufferings. 
Not in the suffering itself, okay? God's not a masochist. But in the fruit that that suffering produces. In what happens and what's accomplished through it. And so we can rejoice because, listen, God's not random. He's not capricious. Okay? There is a purpose. There is a reason. He is up to something. And so even if God has to cut us, it may be that he has to cut us like a surgeon in order to heal us. Now, the cutting still hurts, but it has a purpose of good. He's always at work. He's accomplishing his eternal purpose. This is the manifold wisdom of God. Always working for his glory and our joy. Always, even if we can't see it or understand it. Or even if we never realize it. He still is. I mean, think about this. Think about how much greater God's power is than yours, right? I mean, he created the galaxies with a word And you can't even figure out how to get your microwave to stop flashing 12 o'clock. Now, if that is at all like comparable to, you know, how great his might is over us. And if that is all comparable to how great his wisdom, how much greater his wisdom is than ours. Then, of course, Some of what he does will not make sense to you in the moment. But that doesn't mean he's not working. And as John Piper talks about, he's probably up to 10,000 things at any one moment in your life. And you might be aware at best of three of them. He's always at work. In a gazillion different ways that you never even realized. Because he's good and he's God. And he's accomplishing his eternal purposes for his glory and for his good. We look back in these days. We look back on history and we see difficult days. And we see him and we, we now can see, wow, look at how the gospel spread through this. And look at how this happened because of this and how this affected this thing and that thing. And, and we look back about, and we forget a lot of times there were, there were real people with real families and real emotions living in the midst of that. And now we look back and we can see it because we've got some perspective. We have some distance. So it will be in these days. And just as for those people in those days... The call is to be faithful in the moment. So it is for us in this moment. And so I, I, tell, I, I tell you, I, I ask you, do not lose heart over what you are suffering. It's not purposeless. And you're not alone on an island. Jesus is Emmanuel, not just at Christmas, always. That means he is with us. And Jesus is Alpha and Omega. And as such, he accomplishes his eternal purpose. He can't be thwarted. And so, on Palm Sunday, even as we face a crazy week ahead, perhaps, let's let our hosannas ring loudly, both Save us now, which is what Hosanna is saying, but also praise your name, blessed be your name, 
Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Hosanna in the highest. Let's pray. Father, we bless you that you are God. And there is no other. That you are sovereign in your power. And that you are kind in your power. That you are good. That you are gracious. That you are loving. That you are merciful. That you are forgiving. That you are purposeful. Faithful. That you are just. That you will make all things right one day. That Christ will return. And all that's gone wrong will be made right. All that is sad will be no more. The sad things will come untrue. We praise you for your might and your power in this. And we ask in this day that you would help us. That you would help us to focus on your nature and your character. Your attributes and those would fuel us in these days of uncertainty. And we would remember what we know to be true of who you are and how you have been faithful over and over because it's just who you are, faithful and true. Encourage our hearts with these truths and help us to live for you with our lives and our lips, now and always. In the name of Christ, we ask these things. Amen. Let me remind you again about our Monday, Thursday, and Good Friday service, 7 o'clock live stream, and then Easter next Sunday morning. And as we go, in the words of Ephesians 3, verses 20 and 21, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, According to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. You guys have a great week.